Where Ideas Launch, the podcast for the sustainable innovator. We won't save the planet by recycling 50% of our waste. We save it by not creating waste. Season two goes heavily into circular business models and innovation while creating a space to discuss issues important to our society, like education. Join me and my guest as we explore and create pathways toward a future for the planet. My next guest is Shane Ward, a regenerative land use advisor, communicator, and the founder of Action Ecology. I found Shane on an Amazon documentary called Living the Change, which I encourage you all to watch sometime. Shane brings an international perspective, scientific rigor, and a pragmatic approach to connecting people with the right knowledge drawn from both innovative and on-the-ground practitioners and the latest research. Passionate about sustainable food systems, ecosystems, restoration, as well as plant, soil, and microbial ecology, Shane also works more broadly to engage people with visioning a better way forward for humanity's approach to energy, economy, and agriculture, repartnering with natural systems so we might provide a chance for future generations to thrive on this planet. Hi, Shane, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. So my first question is, what's wrong with the way we grow food and raise livestock today? Well, I mean, that's a great question, but it's a huge topic. Um, I'll try and keep it concise or as concise as I can. I suppose, you know, a significant part of our agriculture, the way that we grow food is just simply destructive. Um, When we're looking around the world, let's first maybe look at animal agriculture. It's frequently inhumane. It uses large amounts of resources. So I'm talking about water, fossil fuels, um, food inputs from from other parts of agriculture, uh, like soy and maize. Uh, There's an overuse of antibiotics, which drives antimicrobial resistance, which has a huge impact on on human health and has been raised by the World Health Organization as, as a really serious threat. And it also leads to staggering amounts of deforestation Uh, It's driving extinctions and biodiversity loss around the world. It releases huge amounts of greenhouse gases and is also seriously polluting, um, particularly freshwater, but also marine systems. And I suppose, you know, there's been a lot of talk about some of these these problems uh, a lot recently over the last couple of years. Um, So I think more and more people are becoming aware of that. But it's also worth pointing out that plant-based agriculture is not any better. In fact, it could also be argued that it's worse in some respects. So, you know, in cropping systems, we are seeing um, unsustainable amounts of water use, often depleting uh, aquifers. We're seeing tillage, which is the cultivation of the soil, um, which is absolutely destroying soils all around the world. And the uh, UN Food and Agriculture Organization uh, pointed out a few years ago that at current practices, we may only have 60 years left of agriculture if we continue along this path. It's also releasing soil carbon when we do that. It's uh, based on monocultures, which is where we just have basically one crop or one animal or one um, thing that we're, being, that we're producing on a piece of land, which leads to all kinds of problems. Um, can essentially only be propped up by fossil fuel inputs, um, particularly in the form of fertilisers, which are hugely energy intensive to produce. And is only sort of kept running often with the use of biocides, by which I mean things like pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, et cetera, which has, of course, huge impacts on biodiversity and so forth. And, you know, I mean, apart from all that, it's great. Um, but these are obviously really serious concerns, you know, this destructive uh, practice that we that we have 
Um, I would say that it's driven largely by uh, an industrial mindset. So, you know, when we talk about agriculture, the agriculture that we sort of have today, the dominant system, talks about inputs, outputs, production, products, maximising efficiency, striving for economies of scale, et cetera. You know, this is the vocabulary of the production line, the factory. And ultimately, you know, nature doesn't operate on these ideas. It's just fundamentally the wrong metaphor. And I think that that really sort of just gets to the heart of why we are where we are now in terms of the kinds of, you know, environmental impacts and stuff that we're seeing. I might want to ask a question here because a lot of people may think that how do we feed 9.7 billion as we expect to have in, in 2050, for example, if we're not doing the sort of economies of scale? So what would be your answer to that? Sure. Well, so to unpack sort of what the alternative is, right? So the important thing to note here is that there is actually more than one way to grow food, right? This industrial mentality happens to be the way that we've chosen to approach it over the last 70 or 80 years, but it's by no means the only way, and it's clearly far from the best. So, you know, what what we're sort of doing here essentially is we're artificially simplifying something complex in order to make it easy to grapple with. But ignoring reality doesn't make it go away, right? So refusing to acknowledge planetary or ecological limits doesn't mean that they're not there. Not counting the impacts or what they call the externalities of industrial agriculture doesn't stop them from happening. It it sort of simply means that just the taxpayer foots the bill while producers make the money. So in short, it kind of amounts to privatising profits and socialising costs. So the claims that are made by those proponents of industrial agriculture that it is hugely efficient are in fact a little more than creative accounting. So it's simply a case of counting some things and ignoring others. So the claims that it's needed to feed the world, if I'm honest, I think are disingenuous at best as it accounts for only about 30% of the world's food. And half of that goes to animal feedlots and biofuels. So actually most of the food that people are eating is produced by smallholders. What's also referred to as the peasant food web. So, You know, we have a hugely destructive system. They're telling us that they need to do this to feed the world, but they're not feeding the world. A huge proportion of that estimates between 40 and 50% of all the food that's produced is wasted, whether that be, um, you know, in the, on the farm, at the farm level, or whether that's in the uh, supply chain or whether that's after it's been purchased. So, you know, we have these other massive problems. So at the moment, the the problem that we have isn't so much a lack of food. It's just a very poor way of getting it to the right place. So, you know, when we we look at the question of, well, okay, but then why are we here? Why why are we doing this? You know, I think it comes back to this idea of this industrial mentality that we've approached. and, and, And that is actually symptomatic of a whole range of other things. We look at our economy and other aspects of society. So it's not surprising in a way that that's been applied to food production. But the only reason that it's become as bad as it has is because fundamentally this has only been possible because of the essentially one-off energy inheritance that we've got from fossil fuels. So put simply, we've dug up some solar energy that was stored in not fully decomposed plant and animal matter. We've dug all that up and we've burned it to do a lot of cool stuff for a couple of hundred years. But that party is, of course, almost over. So even if fossil fuels didn't affect the climate, which they clearly do, these are finite reserves. And we've now even passed the peak for the sort of easy to obtain high quality energy from them. What's left uh, is a kind of uh, an ever decreasing energy return on energy invested, or what's known as ERO, EI. So 
you know, the amount of energy it now takes to get the stuff out of the ground um, means that by the time you sort of burn it to get the energy from it, you're getting a, a much smaller proportion. So it's becoming way less efficient. And, and it's ultimately a dead end. So what we need to be doing is urgently envisaging a sort of low energy future that actually partners with natural systems again. And we can do that um, by harnessing nature's regenerative power to essentially do the heavy lifting for us and harvesting that surplus. It's a major mindset shift, but it's entirely possible. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So maybe people think that this is all doom and gloom and that, you know, this growth that we, that we so need and seek is not entirely possible, but we can argue that it is. Can you explain perhaps the difference between sustainable and regenerative as one point and explain how we can really sustain that growth? Absolutely. Well, I would say that the, the first thing to understand is that sustainable, um, it, it, is, it means what it means. There's a lot of people that try to sort of say it doesn't mean anything anymore or get confused about it, but ultimately what it means is sustainable is something that can be sustained indefinitely in essence, can carry on forever. Something which is sustainable can be carried on forever. Regenerative is the restoration of new growth. And that applies mainly to living things. So there are, key, uh, there are some key things to remember with this. So ecosystems, for example, are never static. They are either regenerating or they're degrading. They, they can be doing that either slowly or quickly, but they're dynamic and ever-changing. They never stay still. Um, they're governed by constant disturbance and regeneration. So harnessing that impulse to regenerate after disturbance is the key to regenerative agriculture. Therefore, to be sustainable, to go on forever, our land use must be regenerative. So regenerative agriculture, when we're talking about that, what we're talking of, and this is the definition that I like to use, is that it's the design and management of productive land use through mimicry of diverse natural ecosystems that's harnessing and restoring ecological function to produce food, fibre and fuel and is informed by observation of and continual adjustment to feedback. So we're constantly looking, we're constantly reacting to what's happening in front of us and working with these natural processes which are going on. You know, and, and I guess to sort of really boil that down, it means that you're looking to nature um, for a model of how ecosystems work one that's appropriate to where you are. And then you use that to design your land use pattern. So you're working with rather than against nature. You know, so you're shifting your mindset from trying to impose simplicity and artificial simplicity onto the land to one of managing the complexity that's actually there. And this is really important because it means that you can not only stop doing all that harm, stop doing all those bad things, but you can actually restore and repair a great deal of the damage that's been done. And it's sustainable because it can be done forever. And to me, that's a huge deal because really, despite everything, despite all our accomplishments as a species, we owe it all to a thin layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. So without a permanent agriculture, there can be no permanent civilization. All of our concerns around economies and everything else essentially evaporate if we can't feed ourselves. None of that stuff matters anymore. So... To me, that is the primary responsibility, you know, for every nation should be to ensure the security, resilience and the long-term viability of the food system. Yeah. You know, the, the majority of the food that can be grown in a particular place in that climate and consumed by its citizens uh, on a day-to-day -day basis should be safeguarded and should be resilient to the impacts, um, you know, from the world around and from climate change. 
you know, the, so the fossil fuel use and the degradation of landscapes and biodiversity and all that stuff undermine that. And that's a huge problem. And, I, and I, so, so I suppose that leads me to the second part of your question, which was around growth. Yeah. Well, I, I don't see how we can have growth, certainly not in the way that we've been thinking about it. We can't have economic growth in, a, in the way that we've been having it so far. I just don't see how that's possible. It, it, it seems to me to be a fantasy. There is no, no way to have infinite growth on a finite planet. So at a certain point, that growth is going to have to stop. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, and that's a whole other topic in itself. And we can talk a bit about that and we can talk about, you know, whether you can have relative decoupling or absolute decoupling and all this kind of stuff and, and you know, non-growth non or, or stable state economies and all that sort of thing. But, but frankly, I think what it all boils down to is that we live in a finite world and... Um, but for some reason, we have designed a system where we have this inherent promise or, I guess, hope for, for continued growth, but it, it just is fundamentally impossible. Yeah. I mean, okay, so this this brings a lot of interesting questions for me, because when you when you read the research and the text on circular economy principles, for example, mm. it suggests that this continuous growth could be possible, right? Because if you're finding ways to, to put things back into the system, either through extending its use or through retaining it to the environment through different means, but retaining it sustainably somehow to the environment, that there is this potential for for continued growth is that fallacy well i just but what's growing in that situation that sounds to me like a stable state it sounds to me like a healthy stable state where nothing is you know like if you look at the sort of the, the laws of of the universe you know energy and matter are not destroyed or created they're just transformed and if we have sort of um economies that are based on that or societies at least that are based on those principles, then that seems to me to be a sustainable idea, at least in, you know, in theory. Mm -hmm. And yes, in, you know, and if things are cycling through, then I would call that a circular or a sustainable economy, but that's not really one that's growing. That's because yeah. there's only finite resources. In, in fact, you know, when, when we say, okay, well, if we're not using fossil fuels, if we're not using this, um, this buried one-off inheritance of energy, then where does the energy come from? Well, like all energy, uh, sorry, like all living systems on the planet, the, the, the planet really only has one source of energy and that's sunlight that that moves everything else yeah. so it takes in sunlight and it releases heat and that's it and then all of the living systems including us and our entire evolution has been based on that system and and how to sort of harness that that energy turn it into chemical energy turn that chemical energy into work and so on and so forth so i feel like if we if we are going to design something which lasts forever um or that you know that indefinitely um that's sustainable then it needs to work on those principles because i mean that's just the reality we're faced with yeah absolutely so now i want to kind of look at some some other systems that aren't necessarily regenerative they're they're probably more modern systems like aquaponics and hydroponics and aeroponics and different ways of of growing food are these relevant solutions or are these also just a bit of delaying the inevitable that's a good question. But I suppose, you know, we need to ask relevant to what is the question, you know, every tool has a context where it's appropriate. So it's not that there is, I don't know, you know, one thing which is just always good or always bad. But you know, what are these solutions to exactly? So I would first ask, let's look at the whole system of each idea. So you know, the energy, the nutrient inputs, like where do these come from? I think part of the challenge with things like hydroponics, for example, 
is that often um, these systems make sense when you have abundant energy. You know, you, you need to obviously you need the physical infrastructure to build, say, a greenhouse or whatever. Um, if that's what you're using. Uh, and then, of course, you need to you know, climate control it, uh, temperature control it. You need to, as you know, so there's a lot of energy embodied in all of that. And But even if you say you've got that already, um, can it be run essentially self-sufficiently forever? Well, I'm not sure that it can. I think, you know, at least the way that I've seen them done, um, you need nutrients um, in those systems, which are brought in usually in the form of synthetic chemicals, which are, of course, hugely energy costly to produce and then you've got to transport them and so on and so forth um you know water pumping all this kind of stuff it's, it's quite high energy system um even the most efficient ones so you know in general terms i would say that while they may have a place in certain circumstances i don't see them as broad solutions to the problems that we have um and i think it's sort of true of, of any solution really i, I think it what it does is it forces us to reflect on our habit or tendency to jump to solutions immediately. You know, obviously problems need solutions, but what we're often not very good at, I think, as a species is accurately identifying what the actual problem is. We, we are quite susceptible to treat symptoms and not root causes. You know, our assumptions about things, um, our habituation to the context that we find ourselves in can discourage us from digging deeper. And there are plenty of incentives to, you know, the system that we operate in to discourage systemic change or going against the grain. So I think often we just need to really ask ourselves, you know, when we think of something as a solution, look at it as a tool and then try and understand what, what am I actually trying to solve with this? Yeah, absolutely. As we look at climate change, because, you know, there's, I think a lot of people conflate all of these issues into one thing, but there are several issues here, right? And if we, if we look at climate change, like I can see that these solutions, these no, different types of solutions can be relevant to places that are climate stressed. Because, you know, in your earlier comment, you mentioned that governments should be looking for maintaining the sustainability of, the, of its own food supply using what's there, right? But that becomes more pressed as climate change happens simultaneously. So what are your, what are your reflections on that for, for countries that are sort of in that that belt of climate jeopardy, let's see. Yes. Well, I mean, I think to some degree, obviously all countries are going to be affected, um, and but they will be affected differently. Yes. I, I would say that to me, regenerative agriculture is a huge part of that because, well, for several reasons. It, it not only solves several of the problems, in other words, it stops us doing bad, it actually goes beyond that to not only restore the damage that's been done, but to actually do good and can do things like sequester carbon in soils. So, and and do and help restore biodiversity and things like that. That is the potential that it that it has. Um, and already, I think, and certainly in a lot of um, you know developing areas and um, tropical countries, we've seen. Um, agroecology, as, as it's often termed, uh, being used to do exactly that, to provide uh, food security, to um, provide economic opportunity um, to smallholders and to, you know, at the village scale, at the, um, the regional scale. And, you know, I think that really what we're doing is we're, we're trying to say that it's not enough in a way, it's not enough to just stop doing the bad stuff. We've actually got to try and look at how we can make positive progress. I feel like if we're learning the lessons from nature, it is that we get 
resilience through diversity. And that's sort of true at all different levels of, of organization. And I think it's particularly true when we're talking about how you design and manage a living food production system. So that diversity becomes a key part, which means that you're no longer operating on a monoculture. You don't just say, okay, you over there, you grow maize, and then you over there, you do something else, you do goats, and then you do, you know, soy. And, you know, so you don't split it up like that. Every, you know, parcel of land or every sort of reasonable area has got a mixed production because what you do is you start getting benefits from that diversity. Not only do you get economic benefits, of course, if the price of one thing plummets, you've still got something else giving you an income. But actually, you start getting the benefits of things like um, pest control, pathogen control, because you are hosting the habitat for the things which predate upon those pests. You are able to restore um, nutrient cycling. You are fostering healthy soils. You know, that's an ecosystem that's supporting healthy plants. You're getting uh, the moderation of uh, wind and that you're soaking more rainfall in and so on and so forth. And you're actually sort of restoring these, these ecosystems. You're restoring the function of the landscape. So that's not only, of course, a good thing for nature. That's a good thing for us. You know, we're connected to that. You start producing healthier food. It's got more um, phytonutrients in it. You know, you're getting um, fewer pests, diseases, problems that actually that has an effect on human health as well as landscape health. These sorts of things, of course, we're starting to sequester more carbon. We can actually repair hydrology of landscapes. We can reverse desertification. We can, um, you know, at larger scales, there's evidence to suggest that we can actually start to bring rain back to places by putting trees back into landscapes at sufficient scale you know these are quite powerful tools and you know we only have to sort of look at some of the ecosystems around the world which have been degraded i mean if you think about it the middle east used to be the fertile crescent yeah. you know that that used to be the breadbasket of civilization look at it now mm -hmm. i mean you know the mediterranean didn't used to look like what it looks now all those rocks and you know that's the bones of the earth sticking out where all the soil is washed away after all the trees are being cut down. So, you know, this we change, we have massive impacts on the landscape, but we also have the power to restore them, and that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that our experiences of the pandemic has created a sort of mandate for change? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I can't speak for everywhere, of course, but, you know, I have been in Australia and New Zealand uh, during several lockdowns and I've spoken to friends and colleagues around the world and I think that there's definitely a view um, that the COVID-19 pandemic has actually had a real impact on a lot of people's perception of the world that they exist in. You know, there's been, in some cases, a lot of reconnection to community or a valuing of the community that they're in, realising that those ties are really important. Um, I think there's been a lot of questioning I've noticed about, you know, what really matters. Um, why are people, you know, particularly people living in cities, going and working hard at their jobs to earn more money, to, you know, maybe pay off a mortgage or something, you know, is that really what they all they want out of life? And, you know, what's the rush? Being forced to take a pause or take a break has actually had a real um, impact, I think, in a lot of cases. Uh, I've also, I guess, noticed signs that, more and more people are starting to sort of realise that 
the system, the sort of globalized world that we live in and the systems that underpin it are quite brittle. You know, they've got a glimpse of that, which maybe many of us had been immune to for, for a while, you know, living in a, in a sort of developed world where we, you know, are led to believe that, you know, we can have anything we want almost any time we want. Um, it, it was uh, just how we got used to things being, you know, pro the promises of new technology and all these new wonderful things and the way that our world is changing. And then suddenly to be confronted with empty supermarket shelves in some places, you know, and just making us question, you know, what, what's the use of a food system if it only works in the good times, you know, and possibly, you know, same for the economy. It's not safe. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a confronting reminder that, that perhaps we can't do everything we want to do when we want to. It makes us question, are we entitled to everything that we can dream of? You know, is that reality? Or is that just something that we've been told through advertising and all these other things to buy stuff? You know, I think this is really key because, again, this sort of fossil fuel inheritance has deluded us a bit into a sort of, I don't know, techno fantasy where we sort of genuinely believe we live in a world without limits. You know, we... And we tell ourselves and each other this story, I think, in countless ways. Um, but really, no matter what anyone thinks, that's just not the case. It's not It's not reality. So, you know, someone, I remember um, reading a quote that was talking about resources and saying that, you know, if we continue to live in a world, um, if we continue to live like there's no tomorrow, there won't be one. Yeah. And I, I just think, you know, when we overconsume energy and natural resources, we are borrowing that from future generations, you know, our children. So maybe it's just time to grow up a bit and accept that the world we need won't fit inside the rules of the one that we have. So, so maybe we've got to change those rules. And especially when we look at what's coming down the line at us, you know, climate change, biodiversity loss, and that's enormous. And, and the only future that will be possible that, that I guess is viable long-term for us is one that operates within ecological limits. Anything else is just a one-way ticket to collapse. Yeah. I think probably my last question, we'll see how we go. But um, what you've said has a lot of implications for how we live. And I know the pandemic has opened the door to change because we've seen that we could completely change our behaviours. But I also know that there are a lot of people that are looking forward to when we can go back, right? There's a lot of talk about when we go back. Um, there are things that they definitely don't want. So that's the immediate things like going back into a cubicle in an office, right? People are pretty, pretty now open to being quite flexible about how they work. But I don't know that the realities that we're talking about today are still close enough to home for many people. What individual changes do we need for people to make in order to start moving toward or start moving governments and decision makers toward this cleaner, clearer, more regenerative future? It's such a good question. And I guess it's one that's never that far away from my thoughts. Um, you know, it, one sort of note, I think, on this, and in fact, all of this really, is that I've noticed that in this digital world that we inhabit more and more over the last few years that there's a tendency for discussions to become polarized and for for people to miss or just not be interested in the nuance anymore that it's, everything's a bit black and white it's a bit adversarial and i think that that's problematic um because a lot of these i suppose 
approaches, these answers that uh, are out there for us require us, demand that we be a bit more observant, a little more humble and, you know, sit in the question a bit more sometimes, look at what's actually going on, observe and really see that everything is somewhat contextual. So to answer your question, there is no one-size-fits-all response to that. You know, what Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page can do versus what you or I or a teenage factory worker in Southeast Asia can do is going to vary wildly. So, you know, it's difficult to generalise. But I suppose I'd, I'd say whoever you are, wherever you are, start where you are, right? Influence what you can, but never lose sight of the big picture. You know, recognise that the system makes hypocrites of all of us and demand better choices. You know, vote with whatever spending power you have, for, you know, because for those who value only money, um, they will follow those cues. You know, companies, I've seen this plenty of times, plead innocence saying they're just giving people what they want, you know, but that's passing the buck. You know, like you do, do what you can in your life um, know that individual change will never be sufficient to tackle this, but it's equally true that we absolutely cannot do it without you. So, you know, one really powerful thing I think that will benefit you uh, and the wider world is to understand and care about where your food comes from and how it's produced. You know, there's so much talk about, oh, you know, good food, bad food, oh, I can't eat meat, I'm going to become a vegan for environmental reasons. You know, whether a food is good or bad is determined by how it is produced, not what it is. That's the key takeaway here. And that should matter to everyone because the health of the system, the ecological system where your food comes from, is directly connected to the health of your own body system. You're taking that food and you're consuming it. You're feeding the microbes in your gut and you're, that food is becoming you. So it actually really matters how your food is produced and where it comes from. So support those people that are out there regenerating their soils and their landscapes and not destroying them. That's a huge step if people can do that. And if that ends up with, with people forming closer ties to the food that they eat and who's producing it and where it comes from and, and more of a localised food connection, then I think that's a, a huge step. Um, but maybe I, I'll just leave with this parting thought. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you today by Career Sketching with Catherine Ann Byam and The Space Where Ideas Launch. Career Sketching is a leadership development and coaching brand offering personalised career transition and transformation services. The Space Where Ideas Launch offers high-performance group leadership coaching and strategy facilitation to businesses in the food and health sectors. To find out more, contact Catherine Ann Byam on LinkedIn.